Good morning, Calvary Church. Oh, good. There's a jump rope coming up. My dad challenges you. I've been challenged. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> if you know me from a long time ago, you know that there's never been a time in my life where I could jump rope, and so we're not going to try it now. Uh, it'll, it has only gotten worse since the last time I tried, so we're just not going to, we're not going to look at that, but but good for Kendrick for uh, that, those great four, four jumps. Four. Yeah, anyway, there were a few. Uh, well, good morning, Calvary Church. It is great to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm, I'm the pastor of students here at Calvary Church, and it is awesome to be with you guys. We are continuing our study of the heart of God today, and it's one of my favorite Sundays. Four times a year, we have family Sundays when we have our kids in with us. And this is our heart to worship together as a church family, uh, with our kids included. So kids, we are glad to have you guys today, and uh, this is probably a good Sunday for you guys. There they are. What's up? We got the wave over there? Yeah. What's up, guys? So this is a good Sunday for you guys because sometimes kids ask the best questions, right? Like, why? Or how come? You guys have a curiosity about things. And when we're looking at God, it's helpful to have a curiosity that I think sometimes uh, we adults can lack a little bit. We want to dive in and ask good questions about who God is. Uh, just this last week, Kendrick and I were both uh, caught uh, silent by the question of a four-year-old uh, about God. And we were like, ooh, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. There's a, there's a curiosity there. So we want to bring that attitude today as we um, dive into Scripture to learn about God. Um, questions about God are difficult because God is not like us. And we're going to see this in the prophetic book of Isaiah, chapter 55. And we're going to learn how this difference teaches us about God's heart. How this, how this way that God is, is unlike us leads us to appreciate and to worship him. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 55, and we're going to be reading verses 6 through 13. Beginning in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my way, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Church, let's pray together. Father, we pray for our time in your word this morning. We are thankful that you reveal yourself to us in all of your majesty and all of your glory. Father, we pray that you would come alongside us and help us with your spirit as we turn to your word today, that we might see you clearly. 
And Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart this morning would be pleasing and acceptable in your eyes. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Church, Isaiah brings light a problem that we have in these verses. The problem is that our understanding of God is too small. Our understanding of God is too small. And it comes from verse 8, where he very clearly says, God, speaking to the prophet to his people, says, My thoughts are not like your thoughts, and your ways are not like my ways. There is a difference between us. God is different from us. When we try and understand anything, anything that we're learning about, anything that we're trying to, to get our minds around, we always start naturally with what we know, what we see, what we can experience, um, our, own, um, our own knowledge to try and, and grasp something new. And we even do this when we think about God. We start with our experiences. We start with our um, understanding. We start with our concepts that we begin with, and we project upwards to try and get to God. But there's a huge problem with this because God is not like us. This is the problem that the Greeks ran into when they tried to think up the gods and they imagined Zeus and, and uh, Hermes and all of those, Apollos. They, version, they, they dreamed up super versions of humans, that they had power and they had eternity, but they were just as flawed and broken and, and a pain to be around as, as you and I might be. They were just heightened versions of ourselves. Isaiah takes great pains to show us we can't do this. We can't start with ourselves to try and understand God because of how different he is from us. A fancy word for this is God's transcendence. Kids, if you want to impress your parents today, say we learned about God's transcendence. And they're like, wow. All right, um, a good word. Um, he is higher than us. He's higher than what we see and what we understand. And our understanding of God is far too small. Isaiah 55 is speaking directly to God's people. And he wants them to know that the way that you think about the world, your thoughts, your plans, the way you move through the world, the way you perceive the world is not the way that God thinks and plans and perceives us. And he wants to also tell us that God does not execute his plans. He does not act. He does not um, um, move into the world the way that we would act. He doesn't do the same kind of things that we do. In both his mind and his actions, he is distinct from us. And to understand this, he uses a metaphor from nature in verse 9. Just as the heavens are so visibly above us, above the earth, God is so visibly above us. And you have to picture in their time, too, there weren't any airplanes where you could go up and, and go high in the atmosphere. They hadn't launched capsules into space. There were no satellites. The sky was just up there, and it was really high. And we don't know how high exactly it is, but it's just up there, and we can't touch it. We can't get to it. That's the picture we have in God. God is way up there, and I don't know how far exactly. I don't know. I can't measure that distance, but it is a big distance. God's ways are higher than our ways. God is a different kind of being than us, and he is different in, in immeasurable um, quantity, right? There's, there's this huge difference in both what kind of God he is and the degree of perfect he is than us. All that to say, a really, really great God. And we are unable to really grasp who God is. And I think this lies at the heart of a lot of our problems we run into practically as we try and follow Jesus. There are days to us when the gospel seems kind of boring. There are days when we hear of God's grace and we go, okay, sure, that's good. Why do we do this? Why do we have this problem? Our God is too small. We don't see the immensity of what God has done for us in the gospel. 
When we hear about Jesus coming to us, we don't understand how, how much that should break our brains. That the God who is there, who is high, has stepped down to us. That the God who is perfect in a way that our words can't even get to has forgiven us. Our God is too small. I think that we diminish God. This is a way of saying our God is too small. We diminish God, and we do this in, uh, in different ways. Uh, and this is not that we can actually take away from God, right? We can't do anything to hurt God, but in our minds, in, in the way we perceive him, in the way we speak about him, we diminish God. We create a smaller version of God that is cast in our own image and our own understanding. We bring him down to our level. It's almost like we are domesticating God, making him safe and making him accessible. And ultimately, this is what the Bible means when it speaks about idolatry, when it speaks about worshiping an idol. It is worshiping not just a fake God or a statue, but a lesser version of God, a God that is too small. Now, the greatest example of this in the Bible is the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. He, he throws 10 incredible plagues that prove his superiority over the so-called gods of Egypt. He takes his people out. He parts an ocean that they can walk through to safety. And he brings them to Sinai where he will meet with his people and give them instruction on how to live. And when God approaches his people, it is in this incredible storm, thunder and lightning and darkness and mystery. And when the people see it, they are terrified. And when God speaks, they plead, send Moses to hear. We can't stand this voice. We can't get this close to this great God. He is too big for us. We are terrified. They see uh, just a hint of God's greatness. But they go astray pretty quickly, don't they? Moses goes up on the mountain. He meets with God. They're all excited. They're great. And then a couple days go by. And they're waiting. And they're waiting. They're getting antsy. And they're getting nervous. And they're getting fearful. And so they say, we need a God right now. And we need a God that's not so scary. So they take all this gold, they put it together, and they form themselves an idol. They form themselves an image and say, this is our God. This is who brought us from Egypt. This is who saved us. This golden calf. This will be our God from now on. It didn't take them very long to create an idol, to create a a version of God that they could see, that they could approach. And why did they do a calf? It was was very common in Egypt and in the lands that were going in Canaan for peoples to worship bulls, these symbols of strength, these symbols of, of agriculture and food. And they make it a little bit safer, don't they? We don't want a big, scary bull. We want a nice calf. We want a safe God, one you could almost see yourself hugging, right? I want God on my terms. I want him to be accessible and easy. They traded the real God for one who was safer, who was easier to understand, who was so much smaller. And what a terrible exchange this is. This is trading in what is real for a cheap imitation, for what is living and powerful, for what is dead and lifeless. It's a really bad trade. Imagine, um, this is a way to think of idolatry, imagine um, a painter who's going to be traveling far away from his family, and so he wants to do something to help them remember him. He paints a great portrait of himself, and he leaves it behind so that his family can look at it and be reminded of him and be looking forward to his return. 
But as he's gone, his wife comes to love that painting and to speak to the painting and think, this painting doesn't ask anything of me. It's just sitting there. I can look at it. It's great. And by the time he returns, she likes the painting more than she likes him. And she chooses, I'd actually prefer to keep the painting and you can go and do off your thing, right? I'm going to trade in this person, this real person, for this nice, beautiful picture. That makes no sense. That's not something a person would actually do. The picture is not better than the real thing. It might ask less of, uh, of us. It might be less dif- difficult to live with sometimes, but it's just fake. It's only an image. We're losing the real thing. And it doesn't really matter how good or bad that image is. It's just an image. It could be the greatest portrait ever painted, or it can be a stick figure like I could do. It's still just an image. It's not the real thing. This is what we do with God. We trade in our great God for a cheap, lifeless imitation, a smaller God. And it doesn't come close to the real thing. There are three ways that I think we diminish God in our lives, in our thinking. First is we diminish God's greatness. We diminish God's greatness. I think we do this to understand him more, to try and grasp him more, and to lessen that fear of this unknown God, this, this mighty power. The Bible tells us that God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, that we continue to exist because God wills it to be so. He is infinitely big. He is infinitely powerful. And this is what Isaiah is speaking at when he speaks of God's height. He is great. He is better than everything else that exists. And he can do anything he sets his mind to. Everything that God wants to do, he does. He speaks it and it happens. Because we belong to him, we are his creation. He is the artist and everything else in the universe, the universe itself, is his painting. It is what he has made. The Ten Commandments speak to this, um, of our, our, our tendency to diminish God. And in the Second Commandment, um, it speaks to our tendency to diminish God's greatness. This is what God instructed them. This is Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. God commands, You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He's saying that anything you could make, any image that you could set forth is cheapening my greatness. It's fake. It's a distortion of God's image. It obscures his glory. It's a diminishment. In her book on the Ten Commandments, author Jen Wilkin writes about this difference between an idol and God. She writes, an idol is small, but God is immense. It is inanimate, but God is spirit. It is location-bound, but God is everywhere, fully present. It is created, but God is uncreated. It is new, but God is eternal. It is impotent, but God is omnipotent. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It is of minor value, but God is of infinite value. It is blind and deaf and mute, but God sees and speaks and hears. We diminish God's glory. Whether it be a statue, whether it be a false version of of Jesus and God who serves only our needs and doesn't call me to any obedience, whether it be a job or a friend, whether it be our, our talents and our skill sets, our abilities, or our bank account, whatever it might be, any image that we worship 
Anything we give our devotion to is a cheap imitation that diminishes God's greatness. Secondly, I think we diminish God's holiness. We diminish God's holiness. We do this by making him like us. And this lessens what we're called to do. It lessens this call to be holy as I am holy when we pull God down to our level, when we pull God down to act and think like we do as imperfect, sinful human beings. This is why Isaiah shows such a sharp difference between our thoughts and our ways and God's thoughts and ways. He speaks of our ways as wicked and our thoughts as unrighteous. God is the opposite of that. God's ways are perfect and his thoughts are always righteous. He is perfect without any blemish, without any spots, completely holy and without sin. Everything he does is true and good and beautiful and right. God's holiness speaks to his character. And this is what Pastor Kendrick taught us about last week. From one of the key passages in the Bible that shows us God's holiness and shows us God's character. This is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And this is like my favorite verse, so I'm going to read it anyway. We just talked about this. Listen to Kendrick's sermon from last week. Uh, God tells us he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is who God is. And when we diminish his holiness, we expect God to act differently than he tells us. We diminish his holiness when we expect him to act like we do, with sin and inconsistency. When we expect that God will get tired of us, that he will grow weary of forgiving us, that he will become grouchy and fickle, angry for no reason. That is not our holy God. But maybe even more common, we diminish God's holiness when we bear his name in vain. This takes us to the third commandment, which warns against diminishing God's holiness in our words and our actions. This is Exodus 27. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, this is the one we always say, don't swear, right? Don't speak his name in vain. That's part of it, certainly, but it speaks to much more than that. His name represents his character, what we just read in Exodus 34, who God is. We should not bear, we should not carry his name in vain. In, in their time, they wanted, to, they wanted the Israelite people to, to imagine it was as if they were carrying God's name, carrying a representation of who he was with them everywhere they went. It was like the name of the Lord was tattooed on their forehead. And when people saw the way that they spoke, when people saw the way that they acted, that was as a representative of the Lord. And so when they followed God, when they spoke with righteousness, when they spoke in a way that reflected God's character, they were honoring the Lord. They were bearing his name well. And when they practiced wickedness and when they spoke lies and when they did not honor the Lord, they were bringing him down. They were diminishing his name. They were dragging his good reputation through the mud. And as his people, we too are called to bear the name of the Lord, to bear the name of Jesus as his representatives, of those who have his spirit. We are called to be holy as God is holy. When we do not follow God with our lives, when we do not honor him with our words, we are diminishing God's holiness by our very actions. We diminish and degrade his holiness in the eyes of those around us. We diminish God's greatness, we diminish God's holiness 
And then finally, and probably most importantly to our study these last couple weeks, we diminish God's heart. And this is actually where Isaiah focuses in this verse. He's not primarily focused on God's greatness. He's not primarily focused on his holiness here. He wants us to see that God's difference, God's greatness and his height and his all-surpassing glory speaks to his compassion and his willingness to abundantly forgive. Why? Because this is not what we expect. This is not how we act. God shows us a a love and a kindness, a gentle and lowly heart that surpasses anything we could expect, that surpasses anything that we could do on our own. I think that we repeatedly diminish God's greatness and God's holiness because we do not trust God's heart. We want to make God smaller and safer because we don't trust him to be good. And so we need to make him small. But if God is good, as good as Isaiah shows us, then God can be as great and as holy, and we can still love him and trust him. There's an amazing quote. You've probably heard it before. It's from the the C.S. Lewis books, The Chronicles of Narnia. And when the children, they come into Narnia, and they're learning about this world, and they hear about this Savior who's come to liberate Narnia from this evil witch, this Aslan. And they find out, no, he's not a man. He's actually this great lion. And so they ask their companions, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they ask, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Right? Um, And Mr. Beaver replies, is it safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king. That is our God. We see his difference from us in his immeasurable, in his unending grace towards sinners. Isaiah spoke to a people who for centuries had been diminishing God's greatness and his holiness. They had been just going wrong in every way they could. Their ways were wicked. Their hearts were far from God. They practiced every kind of idolatry they could, and they had been doing it over and over and over despite warnings after warnings after warnings. And still, God comes to them with this message of comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people. And he comes to them with a call to return to him, to come back and experience his compassion, to experience his forgiveness and rest from their suffering. We, too, spend our lives diminishing and degrading God. We do not understand his greatness, and we do not worship him rightly. We do not worship him alone. We don't understand his holiness, and so we live in a way that dishonors him. We do all these things that Israel did, all of them. But God remains willing to forgive us. His grace is an ocean, and we are all sinking. We can never use it all up, but we will never run dry. Unlike us, God's thoughts are thoughts of compassion and his ways are ways of forgiveness. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit work tirelessly to provide forgiveness through the cross because God so loved the world. We must not underestimate God's heart of compassion. And so if this is our problem that Isaiah gives us, our God is too small, 
What is our solution? How can we change our view of God? We do not understand his greatness, his holiness, and his heart of compassion. We are limited by our sinful nature. The best of our thoughts, the best of our experience, the best of our reasoning cannot grasp who he is. So what is our solution? I think where this passage points us, and I think where all of the Christian faith points us, is that we must trust completely in who he has shown us he is. We can't get there on our own, and so we have to let him come to us. We can't pick up, we can't put together an image of God that will work, and so we need him to show himself to us, to tell us who he is. We must trust his word completely, and only then will we see God. Not completely, but truly. And this is where Isaiah takes us. It's beautiful, because here God is opening himself up to us so that we can understand him. He does not tell us that he is different from us to prove that we will never get there, to prove that he is so far away that we should just accept our fate, our destruction. No, he tells us so that we can listen to him and that we can learn who he is, that we can find him. God delights to reveal himself truly to us, to open himself up so we can truly know him. And look at how this passage teaches us about God's word, our really one and only way to really know and understand God. It tells us that his word um, is trustworthy, it is true, and it it will always succeed in what it, it goes to do. Continuing with these nature metaphors, he says, my word is like the rain and the snow that comes down from heaven. And That rain and snow will water the earth. It will produce vegetation and it will be what you need to harvest crops and have food and live your lives. And it would be absurd to think that this rain is going to come down and then hop right back up without having watered anything. That's not how it works. Rain comes down and goes in the ground and it waters stuff. That's just natural. That's how we expect the world to work. He says it is just as natural. It is just as sure that when my word goes, it will do what I send it to do. God's words are relentless messengers and soldiers who always accomplish their mission. It will not stop until it goes forward. And so God's people can confidently trust what he says. We can trust these words of comfort. We can trust this promise of forgiveness. It is sure it will not fail. When we continually turn to God's word, scripture will reshape our view of God. Following what 2 Timothy 3 tells us, that scripture can teach us. It can teach us to know what is true about God. Scripture rebukes us. It rebukes our idols. Shows us where we've gone astray and and causes us to put those things aside. Scripture corrects our honest misunderstandings so we might come back to that truth. And Scripture trains us in righteousness. It transforms our plans and our thoughts to match God's plans and thoughts, not our wicked and unrighteous ways. Scripture is this gift to us. Not only does it inform us, but by doing so, it transforms us. When we see who God is in Scripture, we cannot help but be transformed into a different kind of person. This is what Isaiah experienced in chapter 6 when he went into the temple and he saw the vision of God's glory and it changed his life forever. It gave him a new purpose, a new identity. It, It gave him a new holiness. When we see God in Scripture, As Isaiah saw God in the temple, we are changed. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We can trust what God's word tells us. And so we should be soaking ourselves in God's word. We should be coming to this and feasting 
on the vision of God that we can see. A vision that will stretch our minds no matter how long we study it. This is no ordinary book. This is God's divine word, and we can study this our entire lives and still be learning more and more about our great God. We will spend eternity learning more and more about our great God. And God has given us something even better. God's word put on flesh and came and walked among us. God's word came down to us. God's word, Jesus Christ, was a man that people could see and touch and watch and see the greatness and the holiness and the goodness of God clearly and visibly. In Jesus, we see the Father. In Jesus, we see him perfectly. He demonstrates us the greatness of God, of God stepping down and becoming human. He shows us the holiness of God, a perfect life, a life that is always honoring God, that that follows God's character, and he shows us the incredible goodness and compassion of God when he dies on the cross for our sins. We fix our eyes on Jesus to see who God truly is. We are saved by the one living God who is greater than we can imagine, holier than we can imagine, and more loving than we can imagine. This is our solution, to trust who he has shown us to be in his word and his son. And so this leaves us briefly with the results If knowing God really does transform us, then what then should we do? What should we be as we dive in to see God, to ask those good questions, to to know him more and more truly all the time? How should this change us? Well, this is actually where Isaiah begins. We kind of tackled this passage backwards. This is where he starts in verses six and seven. And all of this should lead us to seek the Lord, to return to him from our sin. It should guide us to repent. It tells us that we should, uh, the wicked should forsake his evil ways and the unrighteous man should leave behind his thoughts. We have to leave behind those idols. Leave behind these false ideas of God, these lesser ideas. Leave behind these other things that we chase and we think will bring us satisfaction and security and happiness. We leave them aside and we follow Jesus. We leave behind our sin and our wickedness and we follow Jesus. We repent. He says we seek him. God is pleading with us in verse 6. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is an open invitation. God promises that if we seek him, if we look for him, if we go to his word to see what he is truly like, to, to really experience his heart of compassion for us, he will make sure we find him. God is not hiding. God is not elusive. God is waiting. He is calling us to him. His arms are open wide. We should seek him. And we should make sure we don't take this invitation for granted. It says, seek the Lord while he is near. Judgment was coming for Israel. They were gonna face the consequences of their rebellion, of their wickedness, of their idolatry, and we will too. There's an open invitation to follow Jesus, and anyone can have it, but it will not last forever. Our lives are short, and this world is not eternal. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek after Jesus and see not the imitation, but the real thing. Finally, this leads us to hope in him. And these last verses, 12 and 13, paint us this picture of the new heavens and new earth, of the time when sin and suffering will be wiped away, when creation will be restored, and when we are transformed by truly seeing God to be without sin, to be with him 
to experience all of his good promises. When his judgment, when the thorns and the, and the thorn bushes are pushed aside and instead there is beauty, there is flourishing, there is joy and perfect peace. This is the promise of Jesus. This is where we are going. This is where our compassionate and merciful God is taking us. This is our hope in Christ, a perfect relationship with God when we will really see him and know him truly. No cheap image, no substitutes, just the real personal God. The author and writer John Calvin says, there's nothing that troubles our conscience more than when we think that God is like ourselves. God is different from us. He is greater. And uh, Ortland, the guy who wrote this book, Gentle and Lowly, he writes, an, our, an attempt to make um, our mental image of God more accurate is really what our lives are about. Each and every day we are seeking to change that image that is flawed, that is imperfect, that is too small, to make it a little bigger, a little more accurate to know God a little bit better. And so church, let us press on today and tomorrow and every day to know God better and to worship him. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your perfect word. Your word that succeeds when everything else fails. Your word that, like the rain and the snow, nourishes us and brings forth growth and health. Your word that transforms us to be holy as you are holy. Father, I pray you would, you would help us to seek you while you can be found. That you would help us to forsake our ways and our unrighteous thoughts and return to the Lord and we trust in your promise that you will have compassion on us and that you will abundantly forgive. Lord, I pray you would take these idols in our lives, you would take these, these lesser gods that we get so entangled with, and you would help us to leave them aside. Father, I pray that today and for the rest of our lives, we would dive into your perfect word, that we would see you a little bit better every day until that last day when we will really see you clearly and be with you. Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.